This Week in Startups is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. When you're ready to launch, use offer code TWIST to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Equity Zen, the premier marketplace allowing private investors to access proven startups. Head to equityzen.com slash twist now to get started for free and get your minimum first investment cut in half. And Pilot. Pilot takes care of your bookkeeping from start to finish so you can focus 100% on making your business succeed. Go to pilot.com slash twist for 20% off your first six months of Pilot Core. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. This is the podcast where 100 times a year for the last 10 years, can you imagine, we meet with amazing founders, investors, sometimes authors and pundits, and we talk about entrepreneurship, technology, and the future. Today on the program, we have another unicorn founder. In 2019, we're trying to hit 30 unicorn founders of the 100 guests on the program to look back on their journeys and how they got to a billion dollars. I can tell you almost universally, none of these companies get there in a straight line. Uber did, but nobody else did. Uh, My guest today is Peter Reinhardt. He is the co-founder and CEO of Segment.com. If you don't know Segment, it's probably because you're not in the technology industry while you're listening to this podcast. Maybe you're just getting started. Um, But this is a startup that recently raised $175 million in their Series D at a 1.5 billion dollar valuation that I think happened in April. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It's a milestone, but it's also a commitment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit, uh, it must be a little bit uh, surreal to have a $175 million wire come into your bank account, considering the fact that Segment was a failed startup in the first year trying to do, if you, if I remember your story correctly, when you spoke at my incubator, thank you for doing that, by the way. No problem. You were highly rated, by the way. People were blown away by your talk. Um, you started out doing classroom analytics or something in education, correct? Yeah, that's true. So, Explain. The, yeah, happy to. So we Explain we, your failure. Yeah, so <laughs> we, were, we were students at MIT. Uh, I was studying aerospace engineering. Both my co-founders uh, were my roommates studying computer science. And we had this idea to give uh, students a button to push in their class to say, I'm confused. And the professor would see this graph over time of how confused the students were. This is a brilliant idea. Yeah, it's what we thought so. A bunch of professors thought so. Y Combinator thought so. They let us into the program based on the idea. What year did, was it Y Combinator? Summer what? 2011. Oh, okay. What was that like? Maybe year four of uh, three or five? Maybe the maybe batch. There's like sixty companies in the batch. Sixty companies, and that was batch. when people were like, "Whoa, it's getting big." Yeah, yeah. So you get in. You convince Paul Graham to let you in. Yep. Based upon pressing a button that you're confused, and if more than whatever thirty or forty percent are confused, you stop the class and catch everybody up. That's right. It was the jankiest UI you can possibly imagine. It was yeah. Like, you know quite ugly. Uh, and we actually, we had gotten the idea by talking to one of the other YC partners who's a professor at MIT. Ah. And who was dur- that? Uh, Miller. Okay. Or Morris. Or Morris. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in the midst of our YC interview, he's there obviously as a partner. Yeah. And Paul Graham turns to him and says, would you use this? And he says, no. Oh my Lord. <laughs> we had a panic moment. We're like, dude, you literally gave us the idea. Yeah. <laughs> you gave us the idea. I have 10 minutes with Paul Graham. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And why are you fucking The boat me? is yeah. sinking yeah. <laughs> and I'm treading water. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, we, but we had talked to like 20 other professors who were also excited about it. So we, cool. we, we covered with that and uh, they let us in. And did you actually get that product to market and how did it do? 
We did. So we spent the summer, we probably wrote 100,000 lines of code that had this super advanced classroom product. It went way beyond the button. It had like lecture notes and students could take notes in it and they could see the presentation, all sorts of stuff, ask questions live and so on. Uh, we deployed it into a couple classrooms and then raised 600K coming out of Demo Day. Uh, and then we really deployed it as the, as the fall uh, semester started. And it was a total disaster. So basically, all the students opened their laptops and they just went straight to Facebook. So the beginning of the class, uh, you know, 100% of the students have their laptops open. 60% of them were on Facebook, and by the end of any given hour-long lecture, 80% of the students were on Facebook. Oh my god! So it was the most distracting thing you could conceivably put into the classroom. So screen plus lecture hall equals fail. Yeah, totally. And, and it, you were contributing to the distraction. Right, because most of the time students don't actually have their laptops out. Right. And so you're so like, take your laptop out. Exactly. And get notifications. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks, segment. <laughs> yeah, and at the time people were like, oh, well, why don't you just go to mobile? It's like, okay, well, then they're just going to be Snapchatting or whatever. Yeah. You know? Candy crush. Here we exactly. go. So how many months in do you decide, oh, my God, this was a terrible idea. We need to pivot. We were four months in and we were two weeks post 600K raise. So literally the wires had hit our bank account. And then like a week later, we had to call back all the investors who just wired us money and be like, that was a terrible idea. I'm so sorry, but like, what do you want us to do with the money? Oh, you actually took the time to do that? Yeah. That is classy and ethical. I was just on the phone with one of the highest profile VCs in the industry and he mm. said, uh, Jason, I have a startup. I need your advice because we don't ever do angel. We did an angel round of like whatever, a yeah. million dollars. It didn't work. They had 450K left. What are they supposed to do? And I'm like, they're supposed to offer you the money back or convince you of a pivot and then let you buy into that or take your money back. He's mm -hmm. like, that's what I thought. I was like, what's happening? He's like, well, they told us they're pivoting and they're not giving the money back. And I was like, yeah. Mm. I, would, I just told him, I was like, well, consider that payment so you don't have to do the Series A. Right. Like you you literally now don't have to believe in these people anymore because they don't have the class. What did they say to you? What did the investors say when you say, can, we're, can we give you your money back or do you buy into this? What happened? Yes, I think we had maybe eight investors. One of them uh, was a fund that was specifically dedicated to education uh, products. Oh my God, are you going to tell me they took their money back? So one did, yeah. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, but they, no. were, they were actually required by their LPs to do it. Oh, my Lord. They had to because we were pivoting out of education. So in that case, they took back 250K. Uh, and then- there At was a $5 million valuation, 10 million? That's yeah, the range. Like that. Something like that. It's probably five. I've forgotten. In 2011, it's probably five. They probably yeah. own 5% of segment. Plus some dilution, something like that. They would have been down at three. Yeah. So that would be a 500. No, it's a $50 million position. Something like that. Yeah. This is like one of the big lessons of angel investing. It's like, yeah. if you've already convinced yourself that these founders are smart, do not take the money back. The same thing happened with Odeo and Twitter. Mm -hmm. They gave them the option to take the money back. Yeah. Some investors did. Yeah. Odeo then became Twitter. Yep. Totally. Uh, and then there was one, one angel. So they were required by their LPs to do that since they were an education-only oh. fund. And then there was one angel who also uh, took, took their money back. And then the rest said, look, we invested for the team. Go find something else. Wow. I mean, I just have to pause there for a second. Are you, do you still have a relationship with that angel? Uh, I don't. Oh, my and God. And I later found out that one of the other angels, who's now a very good friend, um, 
basically wrote us off as a tax loss at that point, which was probably justified. Um, yeah, and, that's fine. and we re- reconnected like three years, four years later when he had invested in another company uh, called Mode Analytics, which is, which is a great company run by a friend. And uh, he was like, oh, what other companies are doing really well that I should know about and invest in? And uh, Derek at Mode was like, oh, there's this company called Segment. He's like, what, seg- segment.com? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. He's like, oh, shit. Like, I should really? go catch up with them. I should go catch up with them. <laughs> yeah. I guess you don't send monthly updates. You're part yeah. of the uh, Y Combinator. We yeah. don't send updates crew. Yeah, yeah. This is well, my biggest when, when, when pet peeve. <laughs> but when companies start failing, they usually stop sending monthly updates, which yes. is what happened to us, right? Yeah, there's a direct correlation, I tell people, between the number of updates sent and the and the success of the business. Yeah, totally. It's hard to write an update, isn't it? Like when it's going when bad. It's bad. There's a lot mm-hmm. of shame. There's a lot of fear. For sure. But if you do send it, mm-hmm. you might get help. You might get help. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, we were noobs. You were noobs. Sure. Uh, so where does the when we get back from this quick break, I want to understand how you stumbled upon you're not CRM, you're data management, profile data management. What what is the category? Customer data infrastructure. Customer data infrastructure. That's correct. Which means what? means that we become the single source of truth for a company's customer data. So Got everything it. about their customers that they know within Got their it. four walls, we're the infrastructure that plums that. Got it. So when we get back from this break, I want to explain to the audience what that is and should they be scared of that on a privacy basis? And how did you come up with that idea mm-hmm. uh, after segment the classroom analytics tool from hell failed? When we get back <laughs> on This Week in Startups. It's time for you to turn your great idea, perhaps even your startup idea, into a website. What are you going to do? You're going to use Squarespace because you need a beautiful website with incredible functionality from blogging to e-commerce, and you want everybody on the team to be able to quickly edit and update the website, and you want to get a great price. Whether you're trying to sell products or services or promote an online business or maybe a physical real-world business, Maybe you're doing an event, we do a lot of events, or a special project. Bing, bang, boom. You can get your Squarespace website up and running immediately with their beautiful templates that are customizable, powerful e-commerce functionality, and it's all optimized for mobile, tablet. You make it, it looks beautiful in all different screen sizes. And you get analytics, plus you can buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions. You may have seen IU... I did uh, angel.university and founder.university using Squarespace. It's free, it's secure, and 24-7 award-winning customer support. So here is your call to action. I want you to visit squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, just use that offer code TWIST, T-W-I-S-T, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I love Squarespace. They've been a credible supporter of this podcast. And every month, every quarter, Week in, week out, they're delivering new features. This is one of the great things about cloud software and the and the movement. Squarespace just keeps listening to those customers and adding new features. And then you can just see it in the product and the functionality. And the price stays the same and the value goes up. That's efficiency. That's what entrepreneurship is about, building a better mousetrap. And that better mousetrap is Squarespace. So go ahead and visit squarespace.com. Use the promo code TWIST to save 10% off your first purchase. Okay, let's get back to this amazing website. I'm sorry. 
Mason Podcast. All right, Peter Reinhardt is here. He's the co-founder and CEO of Segment. For those of you from MIT, that was the classroom analytics tool from Hal that he pivoted from. For those of you who took your money back uh, as angel investors, this is your greatest regret ever and keeping you up at night. And for those of you who believed in the team, regardless of what vertical they were going after, this is probably your greatest hit. You dropped out of MIT? Indeed. After how many years? Uh, three. So I had one semester left. How does uh, mom and dad feel about that? Uh, they were fine with it. They were fine with it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had such conviction about wanting to go start a company that they uh, they, they didn't. I've heard of people leaving in year one and two. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody leave with 14 credits left. Yeah. What do you have left? 12 credits? 14 credits? A senior project. Oh, just a senior project. Yeah. Can Segment be your senior project? Can we talk to Negroponte or somebody know, over they, there, Joey Ito? <laughs> MIT doesn't seem to have any qualms about uh, about listing any of the three of us as alumni at this point. So Really? I think yeah. they need to wrap they, up they... this degree with you. I'm going <laughs> to just go ahead and make a – this is an unsolicited message to the muckety mucks at MIT. Wrap it up. Give them credit, life experience, because <laughs> this guy's going to be – doing your graduation speech, uh, commencement speech. How did you come up with the idea for this consumer data infrastructure? And give me an example that the audience can, that the audience will be able to easily understand. Maybe a customer, you can take sure. the name out if you don't want to say their name, but of how they might manage customer data with your tool. Sure. So it was a bit of a journey, actually, from getting from education startup to uh, customer data infrastructure. So we decided, as we pivoted out of the classroom tool, to try to build an analytics tool. Okay, like Google so, Analytics or something. Exactly, like Page Google views. Analytics, like Mixpanel, Kissmetrics, et cetera. Yeah. And we wanted to do that because we felt like we should have been able to understand this usage problem that we had in the classroom mm. via an analytics tool, which we hadn't been able to figure out. Anyways, we spent a year trying to build an analytics tool, really difficult market, tons of competitors, uh, failed completely to get traction with that. You're up against Google, who's got a free product, right? Google Analytics was out for five years by that time. And we actually tried to build an automatic analytics tool, an automatic insights tool, uh. which would actually basically look at all the data. It would look at all possible different segments of the data. That's where the name segment came from. Gotcha. Look at all possible different segmentations of it, and it would pull out any that were statistically different. Got it. So you and would look at location, out, age, and yep. what pages they were looking at and look for anomalies or notable moments. That's right. And we had one significant customer at the time, which I think was like MailChimp or something like that. Oh, yeah. And, and we cut this in every possible dimension. And there was literally, there was no insight to be had. Wow. There was no segment that was we've, behaving statistically significantly different. Ben, we've gone deep into your data. Yeah. And we found nothing. <laughs> that, is, that was correct. So it was interesting that it was the first analytics tool that actually made a bet that there was an insight there to be had. Isn't it amazing? Ben Chestnut, He's that business does a billion Same. dollars a year or something now in revenue. I'm not talking about like unicorn valuation. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's at a billion. Super impressive business. In revenue. He's never raised money. Yeah. I met them in like year two and they were like a major sponsor of this podcast for the first two years. Yeah. And I was like, can I invest? He's like, we don't need money. I was like, please, I'll do anything, like any valuation, any amount. It was just so obvious to me. And I think they're going to go public soon. Good for them. Can you imagine? Awesome. So what are you in year two of your journey at Segment? So we're two years in. We have about 100K left in the bank. Oh, boy. We have maybe How many six months left, just the four founders. Okay. Um, so we got like six months of runway left sure, to like figure out something. Yeah, You're exactly. on 3K draws a month each. <laughs> yeah. About. Right. Uh, yeah, less than that. Yeah, um, 2,500. Okay, here we go. And so pause there. Rewind all the way back to the first week of Y Combinator in June 2011. And we're trying to build this class. My lecture tool, we tried to put analytics on it. We Google Analytics. We find Google Analytics, Kissmetrics, and Mixpanel. And we can't figure out which one of these tools is different, which one we should use. So we build uh, this little 50-line piece of code that can basically send one data point to all three 
like a mm-hmm. page view, send it to all three. Like an a event, common send pixel. It to all three. That's correct. Yeah. So we're basically federating out the data to these three different tools. Nice little hack. We forget about it. It's 50 lines of code among 100,000. Four months later, we improve it a little bit. Four months later, we improve it a little bit more. By that point, we're trying to sell our own analytics tool, right? And we mm-hmm. keep encountering this objection, which is, well, I already have Mixpanel installed. So like, I don't really want to go to the effort of installing your analytics tool. Like, it's uh, another 100 milliseconds. We've got to ping another server. Yeah, I need to like page distract down. my engineer for a while to redo sure. this thing, et cetera. So my co-founder Ilya has this idea. He says, what if we add ourselves as the fourth service that this can send data to? And then every time someone has that objection, we give them this library, they send data to us and the existing tool that they have. And then we'll compete on product rather than moat. Genius. Like, cool, let's do it. So we start sending out this library as a growth hack. People start replying like, oh, I'll totally use that library. That's great. And they start starring it on GitHub, contributing to it. And they still won't install our analytics tool. Like they won't drop in the API key to send us data. No, they're like, we love your hack. Yeah. Your one dimensional 50 line of code hack is delightful. Thank you so much. The product you work on for the other 99 (laughs) hours a week. No, thanks. Exactly. So we get to this point in December 2012, uh, and we're trying to figure out what the last shot is on goal. And my co-founder, Ian, is like, you know what? I think there's a big business behind Analytics.js, this little open source library. Mm. And I was like, that is literally the worst idea I've ever heard. Like like we said, it's 500 lines of code. It's already open source. Like, I don't understand how you could conceivably build a business around that. Yeah. And so uh, I went home. I was like racking my brains trying to kill this idea. The other guys were all really excited about it. Finally figured it out, came in the next day. I was like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a beautiful landing page. They're really going to pitch the value of Analytics.js. It'll have an email sign-up form at the bottom for like a hosted version of this data router thing. We'll post it on Hacker News, and we'll see what happens. And I'm thinking like, cool, it's dead. Moving on. Yeah. We build the landing page, post it up on Hacker News on uh, December 12, 2012. Blows up overnight. Like basically. How many emails sign up? uh, I had like. 3,000 or something emails signed up, thousands so of stars 3, on GitHub. 3,000 customers waiting for you to give them the product. Yep. Hilarious. Yeah, stars on GitHub. Uh, people were reaching out to us on LinkedIn demanding access to this beta. Like this guy who's now a professor at MIT reached out. Uh, I'll never forget it. And he said, uh, what do I have to do to get access to the beta? I will tolerate bugs like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Life is so weird. Like you you start like down all these paths and you're so certain of which ones will work and then, like some little throwaway idea, gets stickier than you can ever imagine. It's it's really like triangulation. You know, there's a new world over there, but you don't know what the value of the new world is. Exactly, and I th- I think the the thing that we most got wrong hmm. was that the first two ideas were both based on how we thought the world should work. Hmm. Right? We thought the world should want a better classroom lecture tool so that this can do da da da. The world should want a better analytics tool that works in this way, hmm. but. Like the world kind of doesn't care. It doesn't really care what you think of it, how it yeah. should operate. Yeah. The world has like people have needs, and what we found with the with the third idea was like we couldn't see the like huge mission or like way that we wanted to shift the world in that moment, hmm. and yet it solved a problem that people actually had. People had an acute need at the time. Yep. Which they and that's what turns out to actually matter. Yeah. Because if you think about Airbnb, they had a similar thing. They couldn't get anybody to do Airbnb. And then they yep. made this crazy hack of a tool that let you put your listing on eBay. Mm-hmm. No, no, on Craigslist, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like some toolbar that let you format your stuff better. And I think PayPal was a similar kind of thing. They just were a little bit better for some acute. They thought yep. they were going to be money transfer on Palm Pilots. Yep. And it turned out like eBay merchants just wanted to have something simple. Exactly. <laughs> like so frustrating as an entrepreneur. Totally. And and then once you uncover that customer pain, then sure, you can build a mission and you can build a vision around that. Yeah. But it starts with real customer pain. And it took us two years to figure that out. 
Um, my founders in the accelerator, when you spoke, they had a lot of questions about pricing. Mm-hmm. And I think you nailed it with them. They, they came away. I think that was the big takeaway for almost all of them was, yeah. oh, my God, we got, we got to do pricing like Peter did. Explain to people what you were charging at the beginning and then what the reaction was and what you learned from your pricing strategy for segment. So when we initially launched the first hosted version, it was free. And keep in mind, we were coming from a background at MIT, which was like open source. Everything should be free. Like It was really difficult for us to even consider the sort of process of asking for money, if you will. And eventually, we had this product. People were using it. We sent out this email. We would basically send out one-off handwritten emails to customers asking them to upgrade to $10 a month, like mm. apologetically. And, I'm sorry, but would you uh, yeah, please consider? Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'll never forget this guy, uh, Eduardo Alberto from uh, down in Brazil, I think in Sao Paulo, uh, ran this company called Maxi Store. And he wrote back in the email and said, guys, this price is so low that I'm worried about your future existence as a business mm. and you really need to charge more. Don't charge me, but you really need to charge more. Yeah. And that was the first clue to us that we were just like way off the mark. Then we hired a, a, a sales advisor who basically came in and was like, how much are you charging? We were like $120 a year. He's like, this product should charge $120,000 a year. And I was like, a thousand X, are you kidding? Like that's yeah, Don't absurd. add a zero, don't add two zeros, add, add three, three zeros. zeros. Exactly. And did you? We did. So the very first sales meeting we went to, um, he was basically like, you have to ask for $120,000. And I was like, I can't do that. He's like, well, then I quit as your sales advisor. <laughs> I was like, wow. okay. Who is the sales advisor? <laughs> yeah. So baller. Yeah. Uh, and so we go into the first meeting. Uh, I asked for 120K. I turned beet red as what I'm asking this question. What type of customer is this? Uh, it was a it was a startup here in San Francisco, okay. um, Xamarin, and uh, and the CEO argued me back down, or he he then proposed twelve thousand dollars a year. Okay, uh, and I said, okay, well, how about eighteen? And he said, okay, sure. So in his eyes, he got an eighty five percent discount, but in my eyes, I had just been opened my mind to one hundred and fifty x. Yeah, our, our current pricing. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and what's the footprint of the business today? Because obviously raising and be, being worth $1.5 would imply that you have roughly 5 to 15% of that in revenue. What's the footprint of the business now? How many employees, ballpark revenue? Yeah, yeah cash share revenue, but yeah. employee-wise, uh, about 400 people today. Uh, mostly, 400, wow. Yeah, mostly here in San Francisco, uh, some in New York. Mostly uh, engineers or engineers uh, and sales? No, really starting to scale go-to-market now. So. Uh. Uh, engineering team is probably about twenty five percent of the, of the oh, company. Okay, yeah. wow! So you really got a, you're hitting it hard on the sales and marketing and everything. I suppose so. Yeah, four hundred people. Four hundred people. My back of the envelope trick uh, at ten thousand dollars each. Yada yada. Yeah. So you're spending fifty million a year. Blah blah blah. Uh, yeah, you've got a, you've got nine figures in revenue by now. Um, but you can't say. Uh, how do you think about today Uber? Or the t- at the time of this taping. Da, 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 da. My first investment went public uh, in my life, which yeah. is kind of weird. Yeah, congrats. Uh, it's it's a little weird, I have to say, to like watch. I, I I literally on my phone put Uber in the. I'd never used a stock app because I don't trade public stocks. I just have like a wealth front account with balanced portfolio. Mm. So I like was like, plus I own a stock, Uber. I guess I should watch the price of the stock. I don't know. <laughs> that was a really uh, confounding moment for me. Like, wow, I have these shares and they're they're liquid. You can trade them. Right. How does that work? Wow. That, how does that work? Mm. I don't have to call the CFO and go on to second market. Uh, but when we get back, how do you think about the public markets since mm. 
now if you're doing a Series D, you're on that road versus selling the company because I know you've had offers and you could have easily sold the company, but you're obviously going long now. So I want to just get as a founder, founder to founder, your your thought process of, my God, this little company that went through pivots and didn't look like it was going to make it. Now it's made it. It's a big risk that. to keep going and staying solo versus, you know, maybe coming up against some big competitors. So how do you make that decision to go long when we get back on This Week in Startups? Have you ever wondered how to buy shares in a private company? Well, there's a couple of different ways to do it. You could be an angel investor or a venture capitalist here in Silicon Valley, build a huge company, have a fund, and take all this time to meet with 100 companies to maybe invest in one. Or you can use Equity Zen. You can wait and see which companies are hitting critical mass, escape velocity, like Uber, like Pinterest, like Airbnb. And on those platforms, you can buy shares in pre-IPO companies that have matured a bit, right? They're not angel investments. These are more mature companies. And you can go to EquityZen and you can buy shares like I did. I sold shares in Uber and a little bit of Calm back in the day just to take a little bit off the table because I had been in those investments for a long time. No dig to those companies. I had invested in them when they were four or five million dollar companies and they became worth a billion and then 40 billion and 50 billion. And that's where EquityZen comes in. They are the premier online marketplace for investing in private tech companies backed by top venture capital firms and angel investors like me before they IPO. And access to shareholders to get liquidity. That's what they do. They have access to shareholders who want liquidity. Whether you're a shareholder or investor, you have to just head to equityzen.com twist right now. Twist fans can get half the minimum investment. That's right. You can now invest just 10K as opposed to 20K, which used to be their minimum. My listeners get to go to equityzen.com twist and start investing with as little as $10,000. Previous exits, uh, they were available on EquityZen include Spotify, Sonos, Glassdoor, MongoDB, Cloudera, PillPack, DocuSign, Zscaler. These are great companies. I know all of them. Um, I would have loved to get into Sonos and Spotify early. Start investing in pre-IPO tech companies right now at EquityZen.com twist. Let me know how it goes. Email me, jason at calacanis.com. Thank you for lowering the minimum. That lets people get involved without too much skin in the game, but just enough to make it meaningful. So thanks to our friends at EquityZen for doing that equityzen.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. My guest today is Peter Reinhardt, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Segment.com, uh, which is one of the fastest growing companies here in the Silicon Valley. They raised $175 million Series D uh, at a $1.5 billion valuations, I understand. Uh, and you were supposed to be on the podcast, and then you canceled. And I was like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, and then boom. So you knew you were closing the deal at that time, I guess. Uh, I actually don't even remember when we were scheduled, but yeah, thank yeah. you for rescheduling. <laughs> well, we started, we we're like, well, that's good. That gives us something to talk about, and let's talk about it. Um, you Raising money is an obligation. Mm -hmm. People think it's like a victory. People who don't understand the industry think, oh, you raised $175 million, so you have four, three co-founders, I think. Mm -hmm. So the four of you chop up 175 and you leave a little bit in your bank account, you just get $40 million. That's not how it works. Oh, yeah, not at all. You've got to deploy this money, some large percentage of it. You may have taken a little secondary. Who knows? Take a little bit of the edge off. But uh, you decided to go long. Mm -hmm. How did you make that decision? Because when you get this big, I have to think that the Amazons, Microsoft, Googles of the world are watching this success and building competitive products. So what's the competitive landscape? Are people coming after you now? And how did you go about making that decision to go long? 
versus, let's face it, if you can raise that 1.5, you probably could have sold it too. Yeah, so I think if you think about the sort of market opportunity that we have, I mentioned earlier, it's basically helping companies manage all of the data within their four walls. And if you think about what that means, it's basically assembling the customer data system of record about how and who they interact with as a business. It's a very strategic sort of piece of infrastructure for any any business. And it's a, it's a huge market. Sort of the historical version of that would be like Salesforce. As, it would be every business needs it. Yeah, every business needs it. And, and traditionally, people solved that with a CRM mm. because the entire record of every interaction with a customer was with a salesperson and therefore right. it was sort of CRM, therefore it's in Salesforce. Yeah. But- now, and as we shift to like a much more sort of digital interaction mode, you have not just interacting with a salesperson, you also have via email, via the website, via the mobile app, via the ATM, via ads, the ads push notifications, like the list goes Content. on. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, like the portion of your customer data that's actually in the CRM is a very narrow slice. It right. may not even be the most important data. Right. And so when you think about sort of the market opportunity that we see, the market opportunity that we see is to be the infrastructure for that much broader problem than just what the CRM solves. And sophisticated companies like Google and Facebook have built their own versions of it, this. They have this at the core of what they build. They're not going to use Segment because they have their own version internally. They know everything about their users. But now it's beholden on companies who are going to compete with them, yep. whether it's Walmart and Target competing, competing against, say, uh, Amazon, which probably built their own, I assume. They need to understand their customers yep. and if they're clicking on content or if they're – yeah. Exactly. And so if you think about sort of the competitive market to your original question of like, how is that structured? Segment is an infrastructure layer for moving data around between best in class applications, mm -hmm. whereas the existing sort of incumbents in the market are the business application layer. So you have Salesforce, which owns not just the CRM, but they also own exact target and Crux is a DMP and so on and so forth. You've got Adobe, which also has their stack of Adobe Analytics and Adobe Experience Manager and Adobe uh, Audience Manager and so on and so forth. Uh, Oracle, same thing and so on. And so that business application layer is actually like somewhat at odds with like, it's just a very different business actually than the mm. customer data infrastructure layer right. that that segment is building. Um, and I think when you, when you look at it from a competitive perspective, we're not exactly competing with them, but we are a threat yeah. uh, to them. And uh, it's also very difficult for them to enter that space structurally, because if they were to make it possible as we do to integrate all of these business applications together, they give a pathway to to use the best-in-class tool from their suite and the best-in-class right. tool from the other suite. Sort of like the Microsoft Office suite. Like if Microsoft Office let Word and Excel or Word and Google Sheets work really well, or back in the day, Lotus 1, 2, 3, yep. it would make it easy for people to get off Microsoft Word and the Microsoft Office suite. So they made it work really well in, ter in, a, in their little world, but it didn't work very well what they used to call interoperability. That's exactly right. And so we have a little bit of a fundamental misalignment, mm. I think, with, with, the, with the large players. And, and so to us, when you ask why are we going long, yeah. the reason we're going long is because not only is it a huge opportunity, but it's a huge independent opportunity. Right. It's almost like you're a system level or like closer to an Amazon Web Services mm -hmm. level than the application analytics level. And you That's will case, pull yeah. in the information from Chartbeat or Google Analytics or from an ad network or Google Ads. They're agnostic. Right. So really, it's the number of integrations you can pull into the system that make it more powerful. That's right. And if you look at the MarTech ecosystem overall, so all the tools that do interesting things with customer data, there's about 7,000 companies. 
that do stuff with customer data across analytics and email marketing and push and ads and so on and so forth. And if you think about, we see that sort of nicheification, like it yeah. was like a hundred companies a few years ago, now it's 7,000, that just keeps getting narrower, smaller, more and more and more companies there. Mm. But we think that there's gonna be one infrastructure layer. And so the reason to not sell and to take the quick payday is you just think the opportunity is 10X, 20X from here. That's correct. Yeah, fascinating. Well, yeah, it could be more. Probably, yeah, exactly. I mean, it could be a $100 billion opportunity. Who knows? Yep. When we get back from this quick break, um, Facebook has gotten their ass handed to them over data mm -hmm. and the collection of data. And there is a small but vocal group of people who are saying, your data is my liability. Mm. I don't want to keep your data. I don't mm. want user data in my system. How do you, as somebody who's helping people with this data infrastructure balance, what's happening with GDPR and the public's uh, perception that there's a really creepy thing going on here, they're being tracked with helping people build their businesses in a clean and ethical way when we get back on This Week in Startups. If you're a startup listening to this podcast, you need to keep accurate books because you're going to be raising money, you're going to be going into due diligence, and you want to make sure that your books are tight. And Pilot is the group that will do that with you. They will help you keep track of your finances. And they are a bookkeeping company that is, and this is super important, they're focused just on startups. They know you're a startup. They know what your needs are. And they will give you a dedicated account manager who takes care of all of your books and sends you accurate, detailed financial reporting every month so that you, your board, your team, your investors, everybody's in the loop and you know exactly how many months of runway you have. You know when you're going to hit break even. You know what you're spending your money on. Pilot bookkeepers are assisted by engineers that automate the most error-prone parts of the accounting work. So think about that. They've got bookkeepers working with engineers to make this process work better and better and better so that your books are always incredibly accurate. And they use accrual-based accounting as well as QuickBooks Online, which is the standard. You're not going to be locked into some Fugazi proprietary system that you don't want to use and that locks you in. So stop spending your time tracking financial statements and making cash flow spreadsheets. Nope. Use Pilot just like Airtable, Lattice, Cleanly, Scale, OpenAI, Mixergy. All these great companies are trusting their books to Pilot. So here is your call to action. I want you to add Pilot to your financial stack and get back to work doing what you do best. The first 100 listeners to this podcast are going to get 20% off Pilot Core for six months. Go to pilot, P-I-L-O-T dot com slash twist, pilot dot com slash twist to get that 20% off right now. Thanks again to Pilot for helping my startups and many other ones keep the books tight. Tight is right. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back to This Week in Startups. Thanks to Emmy Award-winning producer Jackie and Emmy-nominated Nick. Nominated Nick, congratulations on your nomination. I hope you win. Uh, but until then, you remain just nominated. And Sir Charles, great job on the ones and the twos. If you would like to help this podcast, very simple thing to do. Uh, share it with a friend. That's it. You can write a review on iTunes if you like. My mom will be happy about that. Um... And you can follow me, uh, Jason, on Twitter and Jason on Instagram and TWI Startups on the Twitter and TWI Startups on the Insta, as the kids are using these days. Speaking of Insta, speaking of Facebook uh, and GDPR, it seems like in our country, people are freaked out about 
the fact that them publicly, publicly publishing data, that that data is now being used to record or target ads to them. Mm-hmm. In some cases, this is ridiculous because they're literally posting their picture at Coachella and then they're upset that they're being targeted, that they put the hashtag Coachella on it. In other cases, my gosh, there were people uploading people's menstrual cycles and heart rates mm. to Facebook to do better targeting. Did you hear about that one or see that Wall Street Journal story? You must be up on all this privacy stuff. Sure, yeah. What do you have to do as a neutral third-party provider of data infrastructure to make sure that your customers are not doing crazy, insane stuff with people's data, like tracking a woman's menstrual cycle and then using it and uploading it and sharing it with Facebook, who is a horrible steward of data if there ever was one, apparently. Yeah. So I think the most important thing to understand about data and customer data broadly is that there are two different types. Okay. So there is uh, third-party data, which is data that is bought, sold, moved between companies from an ownership and control perspective. Okay, third-party data, and there are companies that are out there that predate the internet that mm-hmm. would sell this based upon credit card data and your housing records. Those exactly. things existed for direct mail and other companies. Yep. I don't know the names of those companies. Where was... There's a whole bunch. whole bunch. The Aquifaxes, Equifax, the yeah. live ramps, the Axioms. Right. There's a whole bunch of new data brokers and DMPs. Like there's a whole there's a whole world of companies that buy and sell data. And those those are for the most part the things that as people begin to understand them, they find incredibly creepy. I personally find them incredibly creepy. It's insane that somebody has our data yep. and they're like, hey, would you like to buy Jason's data? It's right here. Totally. And they can resell it. And can we even get our data out of those systems or can we ask them for it? No, because in most cases, there's some chain of rights that it has already been sold and it's already been given and wow. therefore it's already gone. So the so cat's that, that's out of the party. bag. Oh, that's third so party dirty. data. Yeah. There's another part of, type of data, which is first party data. And, okay. and this is actually something that you as a consumer would expect a company to have. Okay. So for example, you call the bank, you would expect the bank to know that you've talked to as a customer support agent the day before. Sure, I would want the history because yeah. I'm calling about my missing checks that I ordered. You'd be irritated, in fact, if they didn't have sure. a record of that conversation. Seems reasonable. What would be weird is if the bank sold that data and then Ugh. to Facebook or someone else, right? Yeah. And, so, and so you can think about it as sort of like data gossip, if you will. Mm. Like you expect to have a private conversation with each company and you expect them to know yeah. the history of your conversations, but you don't expect them to gossip in the background with each other. Yeah, that's dirty. And so what we feel strongly about at Segment is that we're very interested in helping companies keep a record of all of their first party conversations with each company. Yep. We're very uninterested. With each customer. With each customer. Right, not company. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're very interested in helping them manage all the data that exists within their four walls to interact with their own customers. Got it. We're very uninterested in helping them or anyone else move data between these different. So you're not trying to enable that. You're not trying to get Target to take their data and sell it to Verizon and do some kind of swapping or whatever. And and in fact, in in the words of Ben Thompson from Stratechery, I'd say we we get a strategy credit here, which is because we've been focused on that for so long, we've built the product, we've built the ecosystem of partners around that as a concept that we are now actually, we feel sort of on the right side of history in terms of pushing at a regulatory level, Mm. at a PR perspective, that we as a country should get rid of third-party data. We should get rid of third-party data. We We should should ban it. We should outlaw it. And has Europe essentially done this with GDPR and their record-keeping policies? Explain for us, if you can, what GDPR is, why it came about, and, and how, why the Europeans have a much different stance on this than us. 
Yeah, the European law is actually super exciting from my perspective. Uh, GDPR. That's the first time anybody on the show has said that. Yeah. That's great. Uh, and, and it does two things. One, it establishes a difference between a controller of data, which mm -hmm. is like a company that collects the data, and a mm -hmm. processor of data. So a segment would be a processor. We're being asked by the controller to do something. Um, and or a it, tool. That's right. Uh, and then the controller is required to get explicit permission from the users as to how they actually plan to use that data as a controller. Got it. And you're 100% right that it effectively makes it extremely difficult for people to use, buy, sell third-party data. Because you would have to say to the person, I plan on taking your data and selling it to somebody you don't know. That's exactly right. Yes or no. Like, how is anybody going to answer that question? That's exactly right. And most importantly, you are not allowed to degrade your service if they say no. Oh, so if it's a free service, you can't say, in order to use this for free, you give us exactly. the keys to the kingdom, which is what Facebook does. Yep. And at some point, Facebook needs to turn this around because they have made their philosoph the, philosoph the, the philosophical approach there has been the more data we collect, the better we can target, more data equals better. And that's fine and good until it's not. And boy, is it not now. When you can target... African Americans in swing votes states to get them to not turn out to vote by using memes that fight against the worst of our you know angels here in America mm -hmm. whether it's race or class that is just so dark you have to wake up one morning if you're Zuckerberg or Cheryl and say what is this Frankenstein we created it's it, the the mountain is too big now. This is too powerful. What should Facebook do? If you if they put you in charge of Facebook, how would you turn it around without having the business collapse? Do they need to collect all this data, or do you oh think they can God. make a real business without collecting this much? I think there was a really interesting article from Chris Hughes, who was one of the co-founders of Facebook, that just posted on the New York Times yesterday. It was crazy. Explain. Yeah, yeah. the co-founder, one of the co-founders of Facebook, was arguing that Facebook should be should be broken up. You agree? I think it's a super interesting concept. Yeah. It's interesting because in our lifetime as entrepreneurs, we have not seen this with the exception of Microsoft and the um, IE browser, which they bundled, mm -hmm. made for free, and then gave uh, OEMs, equipment manufacturers, a hard time if they didn't put Internet Explorer on their desktop specifically to kill Netscape. They did it like in a very nefarious way. It does seem like we are going to have to think about this because the standard for antitrust in America became, well, does it affect the price consumers pay? Well, this is a completely um, ineffectual argument to make in the age of free products that are based on advertising. Like Instagram yeah. is free. Yeah, and there's something really interesting in there. I do think it's it's broader though than, than sort of Facebook and Google and, and Amazon. And um, I think interesting from the perspective of the browsers and consumer expectations as well. So uh, if you, I think the expectations that consumers have have shifted dramatically over the last few years. Like privacy was not a thing that people cared about at all three years ago. No. And just didn't now, even You couldn't even define it. If you asked a person to say, what yeah. does privacy mean on the online? They would be like, no you idea. didn't steal my password? Yeah. And so now you have the GDPR came into effect a year ago. You have the California Consumer Privacy Act coming into effect in January 2020. What will which, that do? 
it looks a lot like GDPR, wow. similar impact. Uh, but m even more importantly, you see browsers getting ahead of what they might expect from a regulatory perspective. So Safari shipped removing third-party cookies, which prevents a lot of third-party data transfer. Firefox followed up and did exactly the same thing, removed the ability for third-party cookies to allow third-party data third transfer. And a third-party cookie is a company that resells data or a company... It's a mechanism by which people can exchange data. What would be the top companies that do that? Are there companies any, out there? Any of the sort of sketchy ad data brokers. Ah, yeah. yeah. And even most importantly, uh, that then created the pressure that caused Google Chrome to make the same change this week. Google Chrome made that change. That's correct. They just so, announced it this week at so Google So no third-party cookies, yeah. which are companies that will cookie your browser and say, you were on this page about antidepressants or yep. birth control or whatever it is, and then sell, Jason was on an antidepressant birth control page target ads at him that way. That's right. It'll be extremely it difficult for companies to share that data now, uh, which is awesome. Oh. And uh, even more importantly, they have now, Chrome has added the ability to prevent, they're working on preventing fingerprinting, which is another mechanism by which people exchange this data. So there's a, huge, there's a huge push across the browsers to make it very difficult for these businesses to exist, regardless of even the regulation that's coming down the pike. And Google... Microsoft, I mean, no, Mozilla would back that because Mozilla is a nonprofit that cares about the world. Yep. But Google is a data broker. I'm going to take a nefarious or cynical, I'm going to take a cynical view of this. Google has all the data they need. That's correct. By doing this in the Chrome browser, they're pulling up the ladder behind them. They don't need any more data. They, they're basically killing their competitors by doing this. Which is why they went third. Wow. That's so Otherwise, it would be an antitrust issue, most likely. The reason they went third. So it was Mozilla, Internet Explorer did it? Yeah, it was Safari. Oh, Safari. Then Firefox, and then Chrome. Right, because if Chrome did it, everybody would have cried foul. Now it's the norm. Now it's the norm. Hey, we're just following the norms. Isn't it amazing the chessboard when you're insiders like us and you know Mozilla is like a nonprofit? I actually thought Internet Explorer would go first or third, and then Chrome would go fourth. So. There's something interesting in there. Too. Internet Explorer would go first because they consider Google their enemy because of the Office suite. So they would say, hey, let's try to screw well, and, Google. And Internet Explorer or whatever Edge or whatever it is they call it now. Uses Chromium. Uh, yeah, and they sell to businesses and businesses don't want to be tracked. It's almost a security concern. Wow. So I would have expected Microsoft to actually It would Safari be a move power first. move because yeah. if you think about Microsoft, their majority of their revenue comes from... and. Satya Nadell is very obsessed with the Office franchise, applications, servers, whatever. He doesn't care about Bing as much anymore. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't mind sacrificing Bing's ability to make 10% more revenue. Mm -hmm. But he would love to scuttle what's going on at Google. But for Google, it's not that big of a deal. It would be these third-party ad networks. Oh, my God, there's a short there somewhere. Oh, there's yeah. some stock to short of these ad networks. I remember in the early days of all this... Somebody had posted to Hacker News or Reddit or something, a Chrome extension they had made. Mm. And this Chrome extension was brilliant. I was telling Jackie about the other day. You would just leave it in the background. It would have like a little browser and it would do, uh, it would take the top like 10,000 searches of the internet from whatever Google Trends and it would just go through one through 10,000 and do those searches, click on the first pages. And now in the background, your browser has now hit 10,000 pages this month or 10,000 searches and hit on the first link on every one. You have just confused the hell out of any ad targeting that could ever happen. You now are the corpus of every single psychographic. <laughs> I thought that was so genius. Like just hit everything and you don't yeah, have to worry about it at all. Yeah. Um, 
what would you do uh, as the CEO of Facebook if we put you in charge of it? And I agree with you about the the breakup thing. I think is interesting talk. I would say unpack unraveling Facebook is so disastrous for shareholders and unfair since they already allowed it. I I would be concerned about the government doing that. I feel like overreach to me. If you already approved it, then five years later saying now you've got to rip it out and go to that expense. That feels like it's happened before. It has. It's just it is arduous and it's significant. And when it happened before, actually, it increased the shareholder value. Which was what, IBM? Uh, it was referenced in the most recent Stratechery article. What was it? Yeah, there was something where they oh, broke up. It was in Stratechery. Was it, oh, was it the Bells? Maybe the Baby yeah. Bells. When they broke up AT&T and everything, I think it made everything more valuable for yeah. shareholders. Like, so when, that, like when Yahoo and, uh, and got split out from its, its stake in Alibaba or whatever. Yeah, when they spun mm -hmm. that out. So sometimes it can, can accrue more value because mm -hmm. people can understand the businesses better. Yeah, I would definitely say Facebook should not be allowed to buy anything else. <laughs> that is a given. Until they work out this $5 billion fine, they're going to get like a $5 billion fine, which is unbelievable when you think about it. They went it doesn't from even a, really matter for them. But now. it doesn't matter. They got a $20 million fine from the FTC when they first did that whole beacon thing. They just acted horribly since then, and now they're going to get a $5 billion fine. What's after that? I mean, did you take a year of revenue? Like, I think I think uh, it's super unclear what what Zuck should do. To be honest, like if he's being graded by Wall Street, then like the business should do what the business should do. Now there's a question of like democracy. Yeah, which frankly should be regulated, and it's a question of what should regulators be doing to rein in a business. This is what has happened historically of all time. When when something when a business begins to impact society. the society in an incorrect way, we we regulate it, and that's fine, and that's just the process that sure. we need to go through. Cigarettes, you got to put a label yeah. on them. It's too many people dying. That's the mechanism. Obesity. Put yeah. the number of calories on the menu. Yep. You ever go to Cinnabon? No. I used to love Cinnabon. 1,200 calories. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I used to love that thing. It's like you, it, you might as well have had your breakfast and lunch, had one Cinnabon for both. I, if I was him, I would wake up tomorrow. You would open, everybody would open up Facebook and it'd say, we understand that some people would prefer an ad-free version. It is now available for $9 a month, $4 less than Netflix, you can get Facebook ad-free, or you can pay for the year, $89. And we will track none of your data and give you no ads. Would you like to do that? Then he can just take the 1.7% of people who do it and bring that to Congress and say, we gave people an offer. You can have an ad-free version, just like you can have Hulu has Hulu for $10 and Hulu Premium for 14 with no ads. You choose. We gave customers a choice, they chose this. That's the ultimate easy yeah out it's a, yeah i mean now you now it's up could be what percentage you think would convert out of 300 million americans what do you uh, guess probably less than a percent i think it would be about a percent i think it would be would you i don't even have a facebook account you don't no nor an instagram account for that matter but you have twitter i do because twi why what is it about twitter and ceos founders i think it's part of the like persona and how you market it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's helpful. You can you can broadcast things that you think are helpful to, to people who are surrounding the company. The most interesting part of this whole Facebook article by Chris Hughes, I was just thinking about it. I'm good friends with Chama, mm -hmm. Sean Parker, mm -hmm. Cheryl. I don't know Chris Hughes. But if you just look at the those four, three of those four who don't work there anymore. Oh, and I know Dave Moran pretty well. 
four of those five have been outwardly critical to the point of creating regulation for the company. Can you imagine if four of your, you have three co-founders. Can you imagine you woke up one day and they weren't in the business anymore and they were out there writing New York Times articles about what a terrible person you are Be and you real. needed to be stopped? Be what is, it, I think that should make everybody pause and reflect on just how poor of a steward Zuckerberg has been with all of that power. It's so unchecked his power and he has made so many colossally bad decisions over and over and over again that the people he made billionaires or sent to millionaires, because it's not just Chamath, Sean, Chris Hughes, and Dave Morin. You can add to that list the WhatsApp founders, one of which said delete Facebook, and the Instagram founder. So you have seven people he's made billionaires or over 500 million for, and they are outwardly in public forums deriding him, asking the world to stop him. What does that say? Do those people have some culpability too, though? It would be like, I think it's more like the people who worked at, you know, a, a cigarette company saying, you know what? Holy cow. What have we done? Right? It's it's sort of like somebody who made the atom bomb saying like, mm, I don't know if we should have done this. Like raising the alarms. They do have culpability, sure. That's a, It's just an extraordinary. Yeah, it's an extraordinary time to sort of observe what's happening. It's wild. It's super wild. What do you think? What do you think the data advantage is? for the presidential candidates who have mastered this? I mean, without getting into like politics, what side you're on or not, but the ability to understand people and shift their ability to vote with data. What are your thoughts? I think new media channels have always played to the advantage of a president or candidate of any sort who mm -hmm. figured out how to use those channels. Sure. Right, like the, I think this has been spoken about at nauseum, but like the switch from newspaper to TV. Yeah, Kennedy versus type Nixon, of and Nixon was sweating. Yeah. And so I think we're in the midst of another media transition and you see uh, a different type of a different type of candidate who, who does this well. this is radically different though, don't you think? Like the ability to, to micro target an ad to individuals in zip codes based upon the polling data and you overlay that to uh, it is the dramatic. electoral college. It is dramatic, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Google is somewhat unapologetic about its about its use of data, right? So Facebook yeah. is certainly in hot water about it. Yeah. But the Google I.O. talks this week, I think, were, were really interesting uh, just because they they were like, here are the amazing things that we can deliver to you with all the data that you've given us. Wow. And, and the things were super impressive, right? Um, they've now rolled out things around speech recognition and all these tools that can, you know, make your life better by... Did, preventing you from needing to make phone calls and all, all sorts of things that they've rolled out as a result of all the data that they have. So there's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting yeah, they're balance hugging of like, the data. And yeah. did they? And they're unapologetic about it. They're unapologetic about it. You gave us the data to do make your life better. Here's how it's getting better. Did they talk about how they're obscurifying it or randomizing it or? No, not, that's Apple Stick. That's Apple Stick. See, that's where I. And, and you buy Apple Stick. Uh, yeah, I think I think they're taking think advantage of a strategy credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, and I think Apple. Apple has all sorts of interesting technology around how they inject at the point of generation of the data on your phone, yeah. they inject a randomized sample of data so that they can't tell exactly what you did. But when they oh. run the analysis later, they can pull out the noise in aggregate Wow! because it will be a consistent signal right. when it's all aggregated together and yeah. get the actual behavior. But for an individual user, you can't tell what they were or weren't doing. 
Yeah, they were the first to randomize the MAC address because people were yeah. people didn't realize this, but like you, your phone is tr- we're constantly perfectly identified at all times. Yeah, it was it was looking for Wi-Fi, yep. and it hits your signature of your phone hits the Wi-Fi router at your cafe. And I had a company called Density. Uh, it's doing great now, but they don't do the MAC address thing. And they were just counting the number of people coming into the cafe. Yeah. And then they were like, "Wait a second! Not only can we tell the." Phil's coffee owner, how many people are in each Phil's based on like an approximation of how many phones. Like if you had two phones on you like me, you'd be like, okay, it's a little bit off, but they could say, oh yeah, Peter and Jason are back for the fourth time and they come in here for coffee every day. It's not interesting. Uh, and you could send an alert to somebody that they're in the building, but then they randomized it, I guess. And I guess Google does that too. Yeah. I think everyone has pretty much moved to a system. I unplugged all of my assistants. Alexa, OK Google, all this nonsense. But I still have my phones. I want to buy a and, phone and, and without fact, a camera and without uh, I think a microphone. The, I think the bigger concern actually is the telcos. So you look at like uh, Verizon, AT&T. Maybe I shouldn't be naming them, but- Yeah, um, but just say telcos, it's fine. Yeah, yeah who knows? The, the, the data that's collected, the location data based on cell towers- Insane. Yeah, and, and frankly, yeah. sold. It gets sold. They sell it? Yeah. What? I don't know about those companies specifically, yeah, but, but it's sold. Telecom companies can sell my individual location over mm-hmm. time in order to target ads towards me. Mm-hmm. Oh, in yeah, fact, yeah, there was yeah. a wonderful demonstration of it uh, like six months ago. Someone really? figured out that one of the companies that they partner with to sell that data had a leak, and they could actually, without permission from the end user, actually just get their real-time <gasps> location. Wow. Yeah. That is demented. Is there any way to route around that? Like a black phone or of some type? That... Turn off your phone? I guess you would have to turn off your phone or keep it in. What, what do they call those bags? A Faraday bag? A Faraday, Faraday cage. <laughs> Faraday cage. You can literally- Wire mesh. Eric Schmidt, I think, built a Faraday cage for himself. And there was an Ooh. apartment in Pack Heights mm. in one of those tall buildings like on that okay. park. And they had Faraday'd it. And wow. I was like, what insane internet person built a- A Faraday cage apartment. Yeah. You have to be at a certain level of insanity. Hey, well, listen- I appreciate you coming on, Peter. Uh, congratulations on your success. I think it's just a great lesson for all the other founders out there. That way you start is not where you end. And really be open, right? I mean, if you've learned anything as an entrepreneur is be open to the opportunity and you were going to kill this thing. Thank God your partner stopped you. You were going to put it out of its misery, weren't you? <laughs> I tried hard. <laughs> You're like, let's put this dog down. And they were like, don't kill the dog, dad. <laughs> don't kill it. What else have you learned as we wrap up here? You look back on this career. It's been a pretty great run for you. You guys are in year eight or something. Exactly. Yeah, we just celebrated eight years last week. Congrats. Thank you. You're eight years in. You've learned a lot. Looking back on it, what's the big lessons you would tell your younger self? By far, the biggest lesson was the fact that you should search for customer pain as opposed to the mission, as I mentioned before. Like Mm. Focusing on the mission prior to finding customer pain, absolute death sentence, I think, Mm. for the company. And yet- Almost every founder who starts a company starts the company because they feel some thing about the world should be true. Yeah. That's interesting. That's the wrong reason. Yeah. And perhaps you could even, if you draw an X, Y axis, you could put mission and pain and draw a four quadrant box and maybe attempt to find a box where your mission and some customer pain exists. For sure. I mean- But it is a great insight because we do tell these founders like, oh, you have to have a mission and a culture and all this stuff. It's like- you need to have customers yep. who keep the lights on or else this is just, this is the chess club. Like it, this is just a, a club. It's not a business. 
Well, congratulations right. on the success and uh, for keeping level-headed about it. And uh, oh, do we have a Patreon question? You said. Or was there a Patreon question in the? Oh, okay, sorry. All right, so uh, this I have to do one more question. So this is our Patreon question. If you are part of the Patreon audience, you're going to hear the following question. If you're not part of the Patreon audience, where this week in startups, uh, you can be part of a private group, uh, you're going to hear a blank space right now. All right. Have a great weekend. Have a good trip. Uh, thank you, Emmy Award winning producer Jackie. Congratulations to the team at Segment. Hey, and uh, to the team at Uber, uh, Garrett, Ryan, Travis, thank you. Just thank you for letting me come on the journey. Thank you for letting me invest in those early rounds. And thank you for all the hard work. And congratulations on the tremendous success of the entire Uber team, past and presence, present. And uh, the best is yet to come. You guys are 10 years into the journey, and it gets really interesting in the second decade. So congratulations. And I am long Uber. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.